0: I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. Ever since Orphan Train became a hit in 2013, readers have been waiting for the next book by author Christina Baker Kline. In the novel A Piece of the World, published by William Morrow, Kline turns her attention to another part of American history, the story of Christina Olson the complex woman and real-life muse that artist Andrew Wyeth portrayed in his 1948 masterpiece, Christina's World. The painting, which features a mysterious woman in a pink dress, lying down in a field, gazing at a weathered house in the distance, this iconic American painting hangs in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City as part of their permanent collection. In A Piece of the World, Klein imagines the life of Christina Olsen. Born in the same remote farmhouse in Cushing, Maine, that her family had lived in for generations, Olsen was increasingly incapacitated by a muscular disorder that made it difficult, if not impossible, to walk. Christina Olson seemed destined to lead an uneventful life. Her fate changed the day that 22-year-old Andrew Wyeth knocked on her front door. Christina Baker-Klein, the novelist, was a guest on the Historian's Podcast a few years back discussing her best-selling historical novel, Orphan Train, which was the uh, subject of of Amsterdam Reads again a few years ago. It's a pleasure to welcome Christina Baker-Klein back to discuss her new book, A Piece of the World. Christina's world is a famous work of art uh, yet some say it's deceptively simple. What drew you to this uh, painting, and why do you think it's become so famous?
1: Oh, what a great question. Hi, Bob. So my new novel, A Piece of the World, was inspired by this painting, as you say, Christina's World, which by Andrew Wyeth, who's one of our greatest American p- painters, I believe, mm-hmm. I, I'm, in my opinion and in the opinion of many. Um, but... A lot of people know the painting, but some don't, so I'll quickly describe it. Uh, Christina's World is uh, a painting of a woman in a pink dress sitting in a field of grass, yellow grasses, that your eye goes from her up the grasses to the horizon line where there's this forbidding gray house and there's this sort of blue-gray sky behind it. I did an interview recently where the, the interviewer said that it, it always reminded him of the movie Psycho and the house in that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's kind yeah. of a mysterious gray house, and you, you don't really know what's going on behind the windows. Mm-hmm. Um, so this painting hangs at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and it's been widely parodied. If you Google Christina's World, you'll see many, many images of it. Um, and But I had a personal connection to it because I grew up in Maine um, about an hour, just over an hour from where it was painted. Um, and as a child, we went on a f- field trip. My dad liked to take us on little adventures. Mm-hmm. And we went to the place that Christina's World was painted. And in fact, we had a picnic in the grass right where she was. Um, I just, in fact, wrote a piece for the New York Times that's that's on. That's there right now. If you go to their page, you'll see it on the homepage. Um, about my dad taking us on these adventures. We also went to E.B. White's house and met him. Um, mm-hmm. I, he did not know we were coming, but we came. And uh, so I, you know, I, so I grew up with some identification with the painting. And also, my name is Christina, as you know. Mm-hmm. My mother and grandmother are also named Christina. And so um, my grandmother Christina grew up at. Pretty much the exact same time period as Christina Olsen she also lived in a farmhouse, rural America, no amenities, no heat, no running water, no electricity. She had a, a kind of polio like illness as did christina Olson and so I had all these resonances, and that was how that was how I first had the germ of it.
0: Mm. And you, as you say, have this uh, connection to Maine. I know since last we talked with you uh, when Orphan Train was out a few years ago, you did a story for the New York Times talking about the fact that you and your sisters, I think there's four of you all together, uh, you all have now have, have houses in Maine. So what I know, is-
1: that's right. Yeah, I, as, we, as I said, we grew up there. Um, one of my sisters lives there year-round, right on the coast of Maine. And the rest of us, the other three of us, have scraped and scrounged to be able to get houses near her. So we all have houses within two miles. I wrote a really big piece last summer with tons of photographs for the New York Times about that experience. And um, uh, I learned after writing it that a lot of people kind of have that fantasy of, of a family compound in some ways. I mean, we're spread out over two miles, but we can walk to each other's houses and we get together every day. In fact, one of my sisters laughed in the piece I say that we tried to get together almost every day. And she said, what are you? Why are you lying? We get together like multiple times every day. (laughs) So it was just a funny thing to write that Um, and to kind of expose our little story to the world. But but it was great fun. And, you know, um, while I when I wrote that piece, I had just finished writing Christina's World. So I was acutely aware of her family living on the coast of Maine.
0: And didn't you say at some point that your father's said that your hair reminded him of the Christina in the painting?
1: Yeah, that's right. So my father... gave me a woodcut, I'm looking at it right now, I'm standing in my home looking at this woodcut he gave me when I was eight years old, um, that was inspired by the painting Christina's World, and it's this girl with her hair blowing and she's standing with her back to the viewer, Um, and he said, this painting, uh, you know, the artist told me it was inspired by Christina's World and it reminds me of you. So I kind of had that connection in my head about the woman in the painting, and I didn't know anything about her, but that was the great joy of doing research for this novel, to find out who she was.
0: Mm. Well, tell us who she was. Uh, You you said, I mean, she was disabled, right? And the reason she's on the ground is she couldn't walk.
1: That's right. And, in fact, Wyeth had seen her dragging herself down to the graveyard where her parents were buried, and that was what inspired him to... Paint her that way in the grass. Um, Christina Olson was this incredibly smart girl, born in 1893. Um, she, at the age of t- when she turned 12, she was she went to the local school, and the school teacher came to her father and said, "This girl is brilliant. I want to retire in a few years, and I'd like to sort of tutor her to take over the school." And her father said, "She's dropping out of school. She's 12 years old. She needs to take care of the family and the farm." So imagine, you know, having loved learning and then suddenly having to do the backbreaking work of taking care of your three brothers, your infirm father, and her mother was also unwell and often in bed. So this young girl, not only did she have to do that, live that way, but she herself was, had this mysterious ailment that was like basically it was like ms and they only diagnosed it after her death but it was very painful it contorted her limbs um, and eventually she ended up not being able to walk so she had to do all these household chores with no amenities um, by herself and uh, it was a hard life it was a really hard life and when andrew wyeth came into it i think he kind of opened up her world and he 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 appreciated her fierce intelligence He appreciated her stubbornness. He really enjoyed talking with her, and he ended up painting her, as Hmm. we know.
0: Why, Why did he meet her? I mean, he went out of his way to do so?
1: Wonderful story. There's a metaphor in the book uh, that I keep. There's that I keep coming back to. It's literal and metaphoric, which is the stranger at the door may hold the key to the rest of your life. People keep coming to the door in this story in different ways and changing the lives of the people who live there. So, Andrew Wyeth. This when Christina was uh, sort of from. Let's see. I think she was in her early. 30s, this young girl knocked on the door, nine years old, named Betsy James, and she just, she was there for the summer, and she just walked in, and she decided to help Christina in the kitchen, and she would sweep and run around the, you know, farm. She just wanted, she was bored, and she wanted to kind of hang out with Christina. When that little girl, who was nine, eventually turned 17, a boy came to her door, who was 22, looking for her father, and that very day that Betsy James met Andrew Wyeth, she brought him over to meet Christina. Andrew Wyeth painted the house, and when I, I give a slideshow when I go around the country talking about this book, and I have the painting that he did the very first day that he met her. Betsy was 17, Andy was 22, and Christina Olson was uh, in her mid 40s by then but he painted the house and he became obsessed with it he loved meeting her and he just ended up doing over 300 paintings of her and of the house over mm. the years um, and, and, and by the, the way he and Betsy were married 10 months after they met so uh, she was she had just turned 18 wow. <laughs> and he was 23.
0: Now you said Andrew Wyeth was obsessed with the house what was he obsessed about I mean what is, what is the m- meaning of this house in the painting?
1: Wyatt loved um, old, mysterious things. He was drawn to. He said, "I'm drawn to every broken thing, every strange thing." He he felt the mystery of the house. I think, and and the grandeur of it. It had been in her family for generations. Generations of ship captains had lived there. Um, There was a very interesting story uh, of how they got there. Her. Her relative uh, many years before had been the presiding judge of the Salem witch trials, John Hathorne, and the only judge who never recounted, recanted. Mm-hmm. So he was just this brutal, ruthless man. He persecuted Quakers. He um, he tricked and killed Native Americans. He was just a terrible person. And. Uh, that, you know, he lived in Salem and over t- the decades, even after he died, his family was sort of tainted by association with them, with him. So three brothers fled to the coast of Maine in the middle of winter and built log cabins, one of which became the house in that painting.
0: Hmm. And you, uh, I know Orphan Train is, is partially set in, in Maine. Um, That's right. Maine has quite a hold on you in, in terms of uh, your fiction writing.
1: It does. I keep coming back to it. It's sort of lovely to have a place that you want to keep writing about. I find Maine full of stories. I find it mysterious in its own way. I find it the small towns interesting. I find the rugged coastline uh, atmospherically, I don't know, creatively interesting. Um, And it's just a very kind of specific way to live. People... You know, there are the fromaways, the people who are definitely not Mainers who come in. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who've been there for generations, and they live in a very particular kind of way.
0: Hmm. And um, in writing this novel about uh, Christina and Andrew Wyeth, I mean, you're basically you know, like fictionalizing their relationship and, and going through... Their, their times together? Or is well, that-
1: you know, uh, sort of, but I really tried to stick as much as I could to the story. There are a lot of accounts of their relationship. So, the, you know, the biographer Richard Merriman did this beautiful biography of Andrew Wyeth, and it has a significant amount in it about Christina Olsen, about their relationship, about how he painted her, why he was attracted to her. Wyeth himself was very eloquent, talking about her and about what attracted him to Maine, what he liked about the house. And again, when I travel around and I do this slideshow, I quote from him extensively because there's this, he he, he had a kind of romantic, uh, um, let's see, I don't want to say he had a romantic attraction to her, he didn't, but to the lifestyle and to um, the house and to the setting and to who she and her brother Alvaro, sort of who they were, he was obsessed with it, passionate about it, um, wanted to paint it again and again and again until he got it right. And he was aware, by the way, when he was painting Christina's World that it was a masterpiece. I mean, he really thought that was what he set out to do. He was quite ambitious about it. He wanted to paint something that would that would last, mm. and I think he did.
0: Now, in, in terms of the painting, uh, you say it is a is a masterpiece, but I don't, I don't know if the word is controversial, but... You note that the Museum of Modern Art doesn't even have it in a gallery. It's on a way to a bathroom or something like that. I know.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Andrew Wyeth fell out of favor. He was, he was very famous in his own lifetime um, for a long time. And then in the mid-60s with pop art and minimalism, um, you know, and abstract art. He his style came to be seen as reactionary and conservative and um, unambitious, and people didn't see in it the kind of metaphoric realism, which is what they call it today, the figurative surrealism that he was actually that he actually was exploring. Um, his reputation is being rehabilitated and there's this amazing new book called Rethinking Andrew Wyeth which is filled with pieces by art historians and curators about his place Andrew Wyeth's place in American letters why he's an important painter and why his work will last mm-hmm. and i i actually truly believe that he is one of the great american painters and that his his work will will last as you know this like grant woods painting American Gothic, Mm -hmm. the couple standing with the pitchfork, you know Mm -hmm. that one, Mm -hmm. and Whistler's mother, which is the woman turned in profile, and some of Edward Hopper's work um, and Thomas Aiken's work. I think that Wyeth um, will be considered one of the greats.
0: Who lived longer, Wyeth or Christina?
1: Wyeth lived a lot longer. He died in 2009. Christina died in the late 1960s.
0: Now and Christina how did she survive financially uh in that in this in this situation
1: That's a good question you know they lived off the land they were subsistence farmers um she her father had actually made quite a nice living. He was a Swedish sailor. He'd been stranded in ice. He walked across the ice and ended up marrying what what they used to call this a spinster, <laughs> who was Christina's mother. She was in her mid-30s. He was in his 20s. He married her. They had these children. And um, he did quite well farming And until he, he had his own degenerative illness, which I happen to believe was the same one that she had, undiagnosed. Um, and he was taken in by this quack doctor in a local town, Rockland, Maine, who basically took all his money mm. and did not cure him, of course. And so they ended up not having a lot of money or having any money, really. But her brother, Alvaro, and Christina had this farm together, and they, you know, they they ate what they grew, and they had uh, a cow, cows, and pigs, and they they just lived off the land, mm. the way many people did back then.
0: Did Wyeth help them financially?
1: He didn't. And that was actually a question. Christina never wanted anything from him. Sometimes Betsy would do things like, um, Christina, uh, uh, toward the end, this is after my book ends, uh, my book ends with the painting, and then Christina lived uh, for another few decades. But... As she got older, the kitchen floor, for example, the floorboards began to rot, and Betsy brought over linoleum and someone to install it and Christina stuck it the roll of linoleum in a corner and After her death, they found it she had never she'd hmm. never done it she just she she didn't she didn't really want to accept things from other people. She was very proud. She was quite stubborn. And, um, you know, even though Betsy and Andy, Andy gave her things uh, over the years, they she really didn't want—she was very proud. She didn't want to accept anything.
0: Christina Baker-Klein, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your new novel, A Peace of the World. Have a good day.
1: You too. Thank you so much.
0: In just a moment, we'll continue on the Historian's Podcast with the story of a Mohawk Valley artist. We need your support for the Historian's Podcast to keep going to cover our technical and other expenses. We're having a GoFundMe campaign again this year, and our goal is $3,500. If you can make a contribution, please do so by going to gofundme.com forward slash historians 2017 we also gladly accept in the mail donations for those who uh, don't like to use uh, the online to uh, give money make a check out to me bob cudmore and send it to 125 horseman drive scotia new york 12302 that's 125 horseman drive scotia new york 12302 The Historian's Podcast continues with the story of artist Mary Vanderveer. Dave Green is uh, joining. We're we're getting immersed in art in this episode, Dave.
2: It seems so, Bob.
0: It does. Well, Mary Vanderveer, I think, is kind of an interesting counterpoint to this story we just heard from Christina Baker-Klein about the muse uh, Christina Olsen and the painter Andrew Wyeth. In that story, Christina Olsen is a disabled person. And in the case of Mary Vanderveer, uh, Mary Vanderveer was uh, disabled with uh, two uh, distinct problems, but still became a well-known local and regional painter. She lived uh, many years in Amsterdam and the Mohawk Valley. In fact, in the years before World War I, Mary Vanderveer smoked cigarettes, Bobbed her blonde hair and traveled on crutches and in wheelchairs between Holland and Paris, where she studied with the artist James Whistler now Dave, we know James Whistler at least we know his mother
2: uh i admit that's about all I know actually.
0: well, apparently he was uh
2: never big on art,
0: okay, well, I used to say that too, or you know, and i don't I'm very bad at art or drawing things, but um James Whistler, I think at the time we're talking about, the early years of the 20th century, was, was living, or maybe even the late uh, 19th century, was living over in Europe, and he kind of held court over there, and uh, art students sought him out. And one of those students was Mary Vanderveer. She was born on a farm near Fort Hunter in 1865, and during her lifetime she painted numerous oils, pastels, and watercolors. Many of these paintings are prized possessions in private collections in the Mohawk Valley and elsewhere. She primarily painted flowers, portraits, and landscapes. To bring it uh, up to date uh, in terms of something we can maybe all relate to, um, a friend of mine who does a lot of historic uh, research for himself and for me from time to time, Christopher Filippo, Told me he has seen uh, some of her paintings, or one of her paintings, anyway, go for over a thousand dollars in an eBay auction day.
2: That'll that'll get you interested in her.
0: Yes, and in fact, in the eBay auction, one of the reasons he brought it to my attention, they had a uh, uh, added, or they were help, they were selling the work using the, a chapter from uh, I think it was my first book, Stories of the Mohawk Valley. You know, they had pasted that by the, um, you know, the eBay auction. In fact. Chris was wondering if maybe I could have got a commission, but it, oh, I, I'm thinking in terms of Van
2: Gogh selling his stuff on eBay. But <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Know, probably you know nine ninety five. Nine
0: ninety five. Well, anyway, um, back to the life of Mary Van Veer, which had a lot of uh, um, tr- tragedy in it, if you will, or which she basically overcame. Uh, she was the daughter of John and Genu Van Veer, born in Fort Hunter. She was stricken with polio at age three; her legs were paralyzed, her hands and back were deformed. The family moved to Crane's Hollow Road in the town of Amsterdam, where an accident threatened her eyesight when she was eight, which really would have been uh, terrible for her, uh, for her, in that she was uh, had these artistic uh, tendencies. The late historian Catherine Strobeck wrote in her book Mohawk Valley Happenings. Quote, Mary's father was painting a wall with a type of whitewash known as muresco. Mary tipped the solution on her head into her eyes. A family member rushed to the milk house and threw a pan of milk into Mary's eyes, which saved her sight. That must have been quite a moment, Dave. The older folks back once
2: had such great—I don't know—was they they just saw that as the liquid a, a, a possible. Way of washing out her eyes, not something. Say, well, if you throw milk,
0: it yeah. will save your eyesight. I don't know. Maybe just because milk is kind of soothing, or All right. something like that. Right. Uh, well, uh, after she survived with her eyesight intact, uh, her family, which was kind of pretty well off, I think her father eventually—not I think her father, eventually, if not always—became a contractor. He built many of the homes on Market Hill in Amsterdam. So the family sent Mary Vanderveer to the National Academy of Design in New York City. Her pictures were displayed at the Chicago World's Fair and the Paris Exhibition. She left for Paris, studied with Whistler. Her self-portrait was chosen for a show uh, Whistler held for his students in 1900. She also came back to Amsterdam, New York, and had uh, dealings elsewhere in America. For example, during her life, she would... Paint people in Philadelphia, and she did a one woman show in philadelphia i'm not honestly sure what the, her original connection to Philadelphia was mary's father converted a barn on Arnold Avenue in Amsterdam into a small house and studio for Mary, using the services of an architect p p Cassidy, and the dwelling was the subject of a house beautiful beautiful article in 1915 about how, uh, you know, quaint this little uh, building was. After World War I, Mary van der Veer moved for a time to Holland, where her ancestors had resided. Her name's van der Veer, and they resided in a place called Veer. She came back to Amsterdam, painted flowers and portraits, also scenes at the Sacandaga Reservoir. And on one of her trips to Philadelphia to do a portrait, she fell and hurt her back. She was never again able to do large pieces. A later back injury hurt her hands, and eventually she stopped painting. But in 1932, 85 of her paintings were displayed at the home of Elliot Boyce on Guy Park Avenue in Amsterdam, a benefit for the uh, YMCA, which attracted a lot of attention. She died in 1945 at the age of seventy nine. In an essay, her niece, Marie Gilbert, wrote, Quote, In a competitive masculine field, not noted in the past for its financial remunerations, Miss V was able to support herself and to travel. Marie Gilbert, who posed for a Van De portrait as a young wiggling child, added that her aunt's blue eyes twinkled and she had a tongue, sometimes peppery, and a merry laugh. I did have the uh, good fortune to to know uh, Marie Gilbert, who uh, lived, uh, oh, I think well into her 90s. Uh, and at the end of her life, she was still giving painting lessons. And uh, she had taken up an, a new boyfriend, who was uh, the now late jockey Lou Hildebrandt Sr., who was a jockey at the Sanford Stud Farm in uh, Amsterdam in the uh, 1930s. And you'd you'd see this uh, couple at at various functions in uh, Amsterdam, uh, Marie and and Lou. Several of uh, Mary van der Veer's paintings are in the collection of the Walter Elwood Museum in Amsterdam, and they, uh, from time to time, will put on a a display. In fact, uh, Old Fort Johnson... uh, Displayed Vanderveers. Oh, a few years ago, I think it was back in 2007, uh, they collected a bunch of uh, Mary Vanderveer's uh, paintings and displayed them at Old Fort Johnson. Again, uh, the a lot of them are portraits, and I know that uh, a man I know who's a uh, deals in estates or estate sales has a painting, and he's trying to find out who it is that was painted in the uh, painting, that man being Jim Schaefer. It's quite a bouncing ball we're following here, Dave. And Jim, I know, has been in touch with the uh, the Walter Elwood Museum. What if it comes down to, or I'm thinking of one question, Dave, that I could could ask you, have you, have you ever sat for a portrait?
2: No, like, nor do I ever want to.
0: You don't want to do that? No, no.
2: Well, I know that Winston... But they, they would keep saying to me... Would you please wipe that look off
0: of your face? <laughs> well, and maybe they would want to put it into the into the painting. You know,
2: who knows? Maybe that, w- that was the picture after uh, they painted Mona Lisa. They they being, who painted? uh Leo Da Vinci.
0: Yeah, Da yeah. Vinci. Da right. Vinci.
2: Would you please wipe that look off yeah. your face? And, and then they wound up with the masterpiece. They, well,
0: they did. Well, even in the story we started this uh, podcast with, uh, Christina Baker Klein's book, *A Piece of the World*, about Christina's world, the famous painting. They dis- <laughs> I don't know what to, what to make of it exactly. They display it at the Museum of Modern Art. It's really a famous painting, but people usually have strong reactions to it, one way or the other. they don't have it in one of the galleries. She says they have it in a hallway on the way to the bathroom. Well,
2: what's what is the rea- what's the reaction?
0: Well, some people think it's too simple or it's creepy oh that's been a right. one word that's been in fact Christina the author Christina Baker klein once uh sat out, we you know where the painting was, you know, and just talked to people about what she the you know as part of her research for the uh, for the new novel. well,
2: it gets the conversation going
0: it certainly does creepy, and I don't have time for the story, but one of Mary Vanderveer's portraits was stolen in Amsterdam and never found. But Uh-oh. maybe we'll tell that well, another That's another day. podcast. Though. Another, pod- another podcast about that. Uh, you've been listening to The Historian's Podcast along with Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore.